The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? There is a protective mechanism that takes over of this dissociation when the trauma is happening. And sometimes it can take many, many years for people to come out of that, you know, amnesia, the dissociation that happened during the trauma to remember. Uh, But like you said, many people, they have a feeling that something that happened. And also, if you look at the degree of mood instability, of depression, anxiety, of hypervigilance, of startle response, of urge to self-harm, of dissociation, reactivity, sometimes people are afraid of the dark, they're afraid to go to sleep. All of these things can point to, yes, something did happen, you can't remember it. But the way you're presenting now implies that something happened then. I'm so excited about today's episode. We are sitting down with Dr. Sagan, who is the psychiatrist for us here at my treatment center, Aloe House Recovery Center. And we're diving into the mind-body connection, specifically regarding psychiatry. And I know that everybody is going to love this episode because we're in a time now where for so many, the old approach, I don't want to call it an old approach, but the typically trained approach to mental health into psychiatry just wasn't working for so many. And so we have amazing thought leaders in this community of doctors now, yourself included, who are starting to look at the way that the body and mind are so connected. So with that, I'm going to give you space to um, give people kind of a rundown on how that all works. Thank you, Alexis. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today. And I absolutely love Aloe House Recovery. Hmm. Aloe House is the most contemporary recovery center that I'm aware of. I've been with Aloe House since the very beginning. And we have really created a a customized culture based on the firm belief that the mind-body connection is everything. That... um, Basically, one of the foundational principles is that by stabilizing physiology, then you can move on to really be mindful and use mindfulness-based techniques to self-regulate. So some people first coming into the treatment center, they may need stabilization with medication and they may not. And that's almost irrelevant in a way. What is relevant is that the physiology is stable. So then we can go on to use self-observation to self-regulate. And this mind-body connection is what we're really looking at, this interface in the newly emerging field of mind-body medicine and how psychiatry is connected with that. And uh, self-regulation is everything. Understanding that what we commonly think of free will 
our mind can actually be part of a reactive pathway that's related to the fight or flight response. And there are many books now coming out about this. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. We're, we're in this time where before I'd even say that in the last just 10 years, prior to 10 years ago, the idea was if you're depressed, you have a chemical imbalance. If you have bipolar, you have a chemical imbalance. If you have any of these psychiatric um, conditions, it's just strictly a chemical imbalance in your brain. And what we're looking at it now is that for many, that might not actually be the case. And I liked what you said about stabilization. We're a dual diagnosis treatment facility. So we do see a lot of cases of um, bipolar and other more advanced than the, the standard depression, anxiety cases that come in. And that's where medicine, I believe, is such a gift because I have seen, witnessed with my own eyes, the incredible shifts of stabilization. There's a client that comes to mind and obviously we're going to remain her anonymity intact, but she came in and for many, many weeks, it was very touch and go. But once she started regulating on the medication, what it led to was an opportunity of some real stabilization. And then she was able to do the mindfulness work. So that's really just such a gift. It's just such a great point. I've started characterizing this recently by explaining to people that the transcendent awareness, that part of ourself that can observe our states, that is like the boat that we're riding in. And what's underneath us is the ocean of our physiology, our reactive physiology, that's the fight or flight response, the limbic system. And when the physiology is very turbulent, which can happen because of genetics, a bipolar history, or these days trauma, yeah, and sometimes even environment, that reactive physiology, the waves of that pull the transcendent awareness into it so that the whole self is unstable. So when the physiology is corrected, it's like that turbulent ocean turns into this placid lake. And it's easy for the transcendent awareness now to learn the technique to move from point A to point B, the self-regulation techniques, the use of self-observation to take that deep breath when the mind gets stimulated, mm. to learn how to relax the body naturally. And by learning these skills, people can eventually reduce their medication, get off of it, or sometimes people don't even need medication. All they need is self-observation. But knowing the technique is imperative to stabilizing. Yeah. So we have that one example, like I said, of the person who has underlying bipolar that's maybe drinking in order to try to cope with the bipolar symptoms, not knowing that they have bipolar yet. They come into treatment, they get stable, and then the work begins. Um, and then you have, like you said, the other factors like environment. And this is what's so interesting in psychiatry that we're talking about environment now, that we're talking about trauma, that we're talking about these other underlying conditions that might be happening that 
really do contribute to one's mental health, especially early childhood trauma, which I would say in our practice, the vast majority, if not all of our patients, we very rarely get the one person that's like, I don't know why I'm here. I had a perfect childhood and like now I'm an alcoholic and I don't get it. That's very, very rare. I I don't want to give an exact percentage, but I'd say the vast majority of people who come through here have had childhood trauma. So can you explain the way that I'd like to dive into, because I know a lot of people want to learn about this, the way that early childhood trauma affects our brain. And then also, if you had a pretty stable, you know, childhood, which these days it's even hard to do because divorce rates are so high and people don't see divorce as a traumatic experience, but it actually is for us as children. Um, But for the people who had a relatively normal childhood, but then experienced trauma in maybe their late teens or early 20s. Um, So I'd love to talk to you about, yeah, first early childhood trauma and the way it affects the brain. This is such an important point. And... I think it's because I started as a child psychiatrist. Uh, My first years just getting out of my fellowship were working with kids in one of the large counties here in California. I was the only trauma psychiatrist for the entire county. So I was working, I mean, other psychiatrists, they knew how to work with trauma, but I was seeing the kids that were coming out of child protective services who had been removed from their homes, um, kids in juvenile hall, et cetera. So I really began to understand from the ground floor up the impact of trauma on the nervous system. In my later years, I went on to work with felons in CDCR. And I really saw the life, the trajectory of trauma from childhood through young adulthood. And it became so clear to me that trauma, especially early childhood trauma, exposure to domestic violence, physical abuse, sexual abuse, it predisposes the nervous system to an instability that later in life can kick up at any point when the conditions are such that it, that it brings it up. So when you go to see a psychiatrist, it's always imperative, especially if you have the diagnosis of a bipolar mood disorder, you have mood instability, to know where is that coming from. With a genetic bipolar mood disorder, usually the stimulation, the mood swing comes from the inside. It feels Mm -hmm. almost like a riptide coming through for no reason. But when there's been a childhood history of trauma, it really, the mood instability can be provoked from external stimuli. So something triggers you, it kicks off of a wave of mood instability. Now, oftentimes the medication that's used is the same, but it's very important to know what's what so that the trajectory is correct. Now, everybody will learn mind-body techniques, but the question is to know the root cause that you can really work from that point. And I think so often it's not differentiated. Mm. It's just you're having mood swings. Okay. You're bipolar. Yeah. Where that's really not my experience. Mm. The degree of people that truly have a bipolar mood disorder is tiny. The degree that have mood instability because of childhood history of trauma is vast. And I encounter that on a regular basis now. 
quick break from today's episode to talk to you guys about Four Sigmatic, which is a brand that I really love and trust because they don't skimp out on quality. I personally have been using their chaga packets for a little over a year and a half now. I was recommended them by my girlfriend and anytime I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, I take the chaga packet and I swear within a day or two, I'm feeling 100%. If you guys aren't familiar with what chaga is or lion's mane or adaptogen mushrooms, (laughs) might I suggest that you do a quick Google search because you will be mind blown at the benefits of this. But today I'm here to talk to you guys about their mushroom coffee. And I know you're going mushroom coffee, please, Alexis. But I'm telling you that the benefits of this and the way that it makes you feel is going to change the game for you. And the good news is it doesn't taste anything like mushrooms. It tastes like delicious coffee. So Evan has been starting his day with the coffee for, I don't know, a while now. And it has lion's mane in it. Lion's mane is the brain's best friend. It supports focus, productivity, and creativity during the day. Fun fact, lion's mane mushrooms have long been used by Buddhist monks to help them focus during meditation. And the coffee actually includes chaga too, which is the king of all mushrooms. The compounds and antioxidant properties in chaga play a huge role in supporting our immune system and maintaining its function. I recommend starting your day with the king of all mushrooms because with everything you have going on, there is no time for a timeout. It's like your daily bodyguard to keep you well. And of course, we have a special offer for the Recovering From Reality podcast audience. Receive 15% off your Four Sigmatic order. Just go to foursigmatic.com dot com forward slash reality or enter code reality at checkout that is for f-o-u-r sigmatic s-i-g-m-a-t-i-c dot com slash reality to receive 15 percent off your order you know those things you are too embarrassed to talk about when it comes to dating like when to say i love you how to define the relationship Well, We Met at Acme touches upon all of those subjects and more, and we get right into it with our guests and talk about their dating lives and also what not to do when it comes to dating because we're all kind of confused together. So you can tune in every Sunday to We Met at Acme and maybe you can learn a thing or two while I learn a thing or two. I think it's interesting. I don't know if you know anything about this and I don't know much about this, but I guess Justin Bieber did this documentary that just came out and he had been diagnosed with bipolar from what I understand. And it turned out that he had probably some trauma. I don't want to say that for sure, but probably some trauma. I mean, I can't imagine growing up in the environment and he talks about having issues with substances, but he also had Epstein-Barr virus and Lyme's disease and all of these other co-occurring factors. And so he didn't really have bipolar. He was just experiencing the symptoms as a product of his environment. And I think that um, when you had just said for people who have bipolar, the amount who truly have the genetic predisposition is small and the vast majority of people who are experiencing this um, have had childhood trauma is greater um, is really interesting for two things. One, I believe that that is true for depression, anxiety, for every major mental health um, 
diagnosis that you could give. I do believe that, you know, we look around on this planet and the vast majority of people say they're lonely, isolated and depressed or have been in their life. And suicidality is at an all time high. And it's not because all of a sudden genetically we're not making enough serotonin and dopamine. You know, it that's impossible that all of a sudden we are all mutants having <laughs> these issues of bipolar and um, suicidal depression and anxiety. It's more so a product of the environment in which we're growing up in and the experience that we're having on this planet and in this disconnected world. Mm, this is a very good point. And there's been a trend, like you'd mentioned before these days, towards divorce. And mm. when we look at the disruption of the family unit, that is deeply traumatizing, not only when you go through it as a kid, but also because we've always learned the social skills for how to be married by the modeling that we see in our parents. So now, like so many of us these days, we don't have that modeling anymore. We don't know how a man and a woman fit together, how a marriage works, what makes a relationship work. And there's so many young people now experiencing that they can get a date, but they don't really know how to move the relationship forward into how do we get engaged? What do I do once I get engaged? What's the different phase of being engaged? How do I get married? How do I stay married? Do yeah. I even want to get married? Do I? It's a very confusing time because we don't have any more defined rules. Yeah. And that's not to say that we're advocating for staying in an unhealthy marriage, but I think that the work is before you even get married. And so the whole idea and belief system of you complete me, of, you know, we'll just work on our issues later, all of these things, and the ease of which it is just to say, I'm moving on. And I think that we can't have that conversation without talking about the limbic system and living living in fight or flight. Because if the vast majority of the population, um, and I'll post the link to um, two books for you guys in the show notes, along with Dr. Sagan's website, where she has an amazing, so much information on mindfulness and how to tap into that reasonable thinking. But um, the vast majority of people are operating in a state of fight or flight in that limbic system because of childhood trauma. And correct me if I'm wrong, the prefrontal cortex is available from birth, but really starts to develop in early adolescence and doesn't stop developing until around 28. Is that correct? That's correct. And so... If you're experiencing throughout your childhood a lot of trauma, you're not actually able to develop the prefrontal cortex to its full potential because the amygdala and the fight or flight response is overriding that critical thinking capability. And it's almost like I think, and maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we need to be taught through the environment that we grow up in, how to access that. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So if our parents are also living in a state of fight or flight, if they're fixing all of our 
uh, messes and mistakes instead of showing us how to learn through things and how to guide us through life um, in a way where we're, we're responsible and able to think things through and become critical thinkers, then we lose that. We've never really had that prefrontal cortex in the first place. That's right. That's yeah. right. How we learn how to self-regulate is by modeling. Mm. And it used to be when the world was a more simple place, we had parents who were able to be calm and hold a steady, stable emotional container for us to have our emotions as kids. And by the parents really holding that stability as we as kids had feelings, we got to learn self-regulation from parents who were able to self-regulate in the moment. These days, life has become so complex that parents are more challenged to self-regulate. Maybe we had parents who didn't have that skill. So now we can't pass it on to our kids and there's really no place to learn it. This is why we have a place like Aloe House Recovery where it's completely focused on mindfulness, self-regulation, self-observation, stabilization, learning those life skills. At Allo House, we, again, we first stabilized physiology, you know, moving people through detox, getting them off of the drugs and alcohol, stabilizing with other medications if necessary. And then we actually, in a way, reparent yeah. where people have not had the, that healthy parenting, or even if they have had good, healthy parents, everyone can still learn more skills. Yeah. And those skills are essential. And so when we look at things like divorce rates and childhood trauma and instability and all of these things, it just becomes very clear when you can see the link between, you know, generational trauma through not modeling healthy behavior and relationships, through all of these things that, of course, divorce rates would be high. Of course, families will not be stable. Of course, all of the, it just makes sense. And it becomes a very clear picture of, of what, you know, America looks like today, you know, and, and it's heartbreaking. It's really sad. It is. And I really liked what you said before about community is everything. Mm -hmm. Because for those of us that didn't have the modeling as kids or went through divorced families, we can relearn these skills. And this is what community is for. Community implies that there will be some community members that have skills that others don't and vice versa. And we can all learn from each other. We can learn and grow. So it's by coming together in mindful community, in conscious community, that we can do that work. We can learn from each other what we didn't learn as children, and we can move our life forward. And it's interesting because you really, you start to develop, in my experience, I went to treatment many years ago, and I see it here, you start to develop these relationships, and it's almost more imperative to develop the relationships than it is to dive into the heavy work. And actually I was talking to Evan about this. Many of us aren't ready to really do that deep dive into our subconscious programming and into our trauma and into our fears and all of that work until many months into sobriety. 
And in the meantime, what is going to keep you sober and safe is having a community of people around you who are there to support you along the process. And it's imperative. Well, I love what you, what you just said. It's so important because everybody has their own path of healing. And that's the clinical skill to see where people are open and where they're not ready and to meet people where they're at and move them forward in their own timing and in their own way with that real respect. Because when you've grown up in a traumatic environment, oftentimes it's the very people that were supposed to love you the most that actually hurt you the most. Mm. And so to trust in that there can be a safe bond and there can be a relationship to bring you forward into having the experience of being cared for or even loved, that takes time. It takes healing and it's a very respectful process. Yeah. So we talked about the way that early childhood trauma affects the brain. Um, But I do, I get a lot of questions about, you know, and this isn't talked about as often because it's not as common of people who didn't start abusing drugs at 12 and all of a sudden found themselves, you know, later in their 20s getting hooked on pills and eventually turning to harder drugs or starting on Adderall and becoming addicted to meth. Um, And so I'm curious kind of how that actually works. That was not my experience at all. So I'm not really sure, you know, for the person who had the kind of more standard, typical childhood, but then later on in life finds themselves addicted to um, hard drugs. I do see much more frequently, I would say maybe 60% have the deeper childhood trauma of early childhood trauma. Um, What I see is that there's a real difference prior to age 12 trauma versus after age 12. It seems that the impact is much greater when trauma is in the younger years. It can be a prolonged recovery period from that. Whereas after 12, if you've generally had a stable family life, a stable upbringing, even in a divorced household, you've had parents who cared for you and loved you. Yeah, and, and who are doing the work and, and working work. together and care, co-parenting right. Right. in a healthy way and That's communicating right. and sharing time. And there wasn't, yes. It's different. Uh, it seems like the, the, the recovery can be a little bit easier in a way when you have that really solid family environment in the younger years. And again, divorce happens. It's going to happen. You know, not everyone has the education to make the perfect choice when going in. Sometimes you learn it in the midst of your marriage. That's the process of life. So I do want to make clear the implication that it's not divorce that actually, I mean, divorce is traumatic in in and of itself, but parents can, by really coming together and creating stability, can create a safe, wonderful environment for their kids. Um, And that's for any traumatic experience. I, I just think about 
I had severe childhood sexual abuse. Had my abuser been caught and who at that time around age five, had I gotten into therapy, had I been able to process what happened to me, there is no question in my mind that the long-term effects of, you know, I, I still might have turned out to you to use substances later on in my teen years, but I just think about how much easier that that probably would have been. Any time that um, a traumatic situation happens, it's it's like if we can envision ourselves as animals who go into that fight or flight response. Um, you see an animal who's been attacked, they start shaking and they got to move that energy around. That's their healing and processing. As little kids, we don't have that. We don't know how to shake. We don't know how to ha- how to process that um, experience through our bodies. And so it just gets stored mm-hmm. and we carry it until, and I mean, and I'd love to actually dive into this is, um, you know, regressed memories and just how the brain protects us in those moments. Um, Because for me, I always knew something had happened to me, but it wasn't until I started attempting sobriety and it took me several attempts to actually achieve long-term sobriety that I actually became very clear specifically on two incidences where I can, you know, I could smell his smell. I could feel I remember what I said. I remember the exact room I was at. I remember like exactly what happened. But I had really suppressed that for so many years, I think as as a, you know, way to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's interesting because as a psychiatrist working with so many people now over the 20 years since I've been doing this work, well, there's a book by... Bessel van der Kolk, that was written called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm. And it's very fascinating because indeed I have found that even pre-verbal trauma, trauma that is outside of the memory, that there are certain characteristics of the mood instability, of the passive suicidal thinking, of the self-harming behavior, of um, nightmares, that even when people cannot remember the incident, the, the impact is still the same in terms of the physiology. So we're speaking before age three. Before age three, yeah. And sometimes even after age three, people still can't remember because like you said, there is a protective mechanism that takes over of this dissociation when the trauma is happening. And sometimes it can take many, many years for people to come out of that you know, amnesia, the dissociation that happened during the trauma to remember. But like you said, many people, they have a feeling something that happened. And also, if you look at the degree of mood instability, of depression, anxiety, of hypervigilance, of startle response, of urge to self-harm, of dissociation, reactivity, sometimes people are afraid of the dark, they're afraid to go to sleep. All of these things can point to, yes, something did happen. You can't remember it. But the way you're presenting now implies that something happened then. Uh, I think it's very important to take a look at because many people who have preverbal trauma or don't remember it are later on diagnosed as being bipolar or another one that's a very tough one for me to hear is borderline mm-hmm. personality disorder. And the vast majority of people that hold this diagnosis uh, really have had uh, some kind of sexual abuse. 
So if they've been abused and they don't recall or it was before they're able to form memories, how do you heal? I was very lucky that, you know, I had like a flashback at one of the incidents that's happened in a hotel. And so I smelled that I went to a hotel and it was the first time I'd been sober. And I don't even know how many, probably since I started using. So it'd been many, many years and that hotel cleaning smell. And all of a sudden it just, it was like, it just was firing off. And I remember like it all, it was just like a wave. And I remember his hand on my back, pushing me down on the bed. And I remember the things that he said to me. And I remember saying no. And I, I remember, I just, all of a sudden the sequence of events was there. And I was like, oh, that happened. I was lucky that that had, that I had that experience. I know that a lot of people are dabbling into plant medicine and it's being researched right now. Um, and having pretty profound experiences. I've had a number of people who've come on the podcast who said, I, I knew something happened. I didn't know what had happened, but something happened. And then they had an amazing ayahuasca ceremony and all of a sudden it became perfectly clear. So outside of that, because that's certainly not an experience for everyone, as a psychiatrist, what would you say are the steps or the, do you even need to recall that memory or do you just need to acknowledge that something did happen to start the healing process? Hmm. What I find is as a psychiatrist, when I sit with someone in that moment and I say, because they come in saying, I'm bipolar, I'm borderline, something's wrong with me. I'm, you know, they have a belief about themselves. And so when I sit with him and I say, you know, actually, there's really nothing wrong with you. You're actually having a really normal response to something that seems like it happened in your life. And we can work on this and you can get better. You can recover. In that moment, just holding space for just acknowledging, hey, your experience is real. You're not defective. You're not a mutant. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with you. You're having feelings from something that's happened. Oftentimes, just holding that space can start to give people room to start to go inside more and dive in and feel safer. Mm. And then really, it's the therapeutic community continuing to hold that space. And people will start to remember when they feel safe to remember. And that can take years, literally years for people just to feel safe with themselves, that they can handle that flood of emotions, that they can handle that experience coming up and out in that wave, like you said. And so most likely what happened for you is that you'd done enough work that you felt safe enough with yourself to hold that experience for yourself and process it. And maybe you had therapeutic community around you that was able to receive the experience and make sense of it. So when you look at the healing trajectory, when I sit with someone that they're first very raw in that state, it can be, hey, you know, we can give you medication that can support your physiology so that we can calm that reactivity down inside of you. And then you can feel safe to begin to have experiences and begin to move your life forward. So it really is a trajectory. There is a beginning, middle, and an end. Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's been interesting. I, I've i done a lot of different healing modalities and um, I still very much so have triggers 
things that come up. And uh, actually, I was just sitting down with another guest who said that he really does feel like he's completely healed from his childhood sexual abuse. But for me, I feel like it's just like it might never I've had to come to terms with the fact that it might never fully be okay. Um, and he's doing other things that I'm not at that part in my journey yet or, or, or open to that are working for him. And I think that that's an, an amazing gift, but yeah, I think, um, holding space for myself and saying, okay, I might feel like I'm dying from these feelings, but I'm not actually dying from these feelings. And, you know, and I've dealt with, deep, deep bouts of suicidal depression and sobriety and and anxiety and panic attack and all, all of these things that have come up for me. And, but when I really look back on it, it was emotional parts of myself or parts of myself that I did really need to let go of and that did need to bubble up to the surface. And sometimes it does feel so, so dark and and that's the times when psychiatry can be a really a gift to hold you in that space of like, this is, you know, because I wasn't on meds at the time. This is something that's coming up for me. And I'm getting to a point where I do feel suicidal and that's not a safe space. And so thank God for medicine, you know, and I'm someone who always has advocated for more Eastern I mean, non-traditional medicine uh, or non-Western medicine as a way to heal because I do believe we have to heal our guts in order to heal our brains. I do believe that we have to heal our autonomic nervous system in order to really feel at peace and at ease. I, I believe in all these things, but there is a place for medicine. And actually uh, a year ago now in March... I did transcranial magnetic stimulation and it was an incredible experience for me. And it did, it cured my depression, which is an amazing a, a gift because I um, tried every antidepressant and I had reactions to every single one. And so I was just one of those cases where that meds are not going to work for me. <laughs> um, and thank God for this new science right? It's such a gift. And I know some of our clients here have actually started trying TMS. That's right. TMS is a real gift. Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Actually, in my private practice location in Santa Monica, we have a TMS practitioner in the same suite. And we've been getting very good results with TMS. And oftentimes people will come in for TMS that they don't do well with medication. And so they've hit the end of the road there and they do come in for TMS. And I would like to say one more thing about medication mm -hmm. prescribing, that medication is like, you know, anything. It can be done right or it can be done wrong. It's really in the hands of the prescriber in the way that they see things in what they know in their knowledge base. And medication when done finely tuned with sensitivity with a seeing of the person it being able to read the nervous system that attunement on the behalf of the practitioner can really work to find a combination um i actually prescribe sometimes an ultra ultra low dose so low that 
literally it'll be a granule of a medication. Mm -hmm. And when someone's highly sensitive energetically in their intuition, they're also very sensitive in their body. Yeah. And you can actually find these really customized low-dose blends that can support the physiology, finding the edge of what when, when it's just enough, but not too much. Also going off label away from the antidepressants into other categories everything's possible, you know, and TMS is really great. But when someone's in a suicidal depression, sometimes you just need the quick fix. So for me on my journey, and I don't want to digress too much, but um, I tried low doses of everything. And then we even started doing half of a capsule of Prozac and then, and, and then lower than that. And I think I was only on like 0.5 milligrams of Prozac for six weeks. And I was suicide. That's when I hit my suicide mark after six weeks of this medication and Lexapro, I ended up in the hospital and um, Zoloft. I was not able to find, we had tried every single thing so it took a lot of trial and error. And at the same time, I was doing Reiki. I was doing meditation. I was doing mindfulness. I was doing all of the things that I was doing. And that was almost more frustrating because I'm like, here I am at that point, I think seven years sober doing all of the things that I should be. And I say that in quotes, you know, all the things that we're told that we should be doing to keep our mental health in check and to do all of these things. But you can't control postpartum depression and anxiety all the time through like self-care and meditation and, and all of that. You can't, it doesn't always work. So there definitely needs to be this balance. And whether we're talking about uh, medical assisted treatment, medication assisted treatment, um, harm reduction, medication for your mental health or whatever else, it needs to be a combination. Mm -hmm. And that's the holistic approach, right? It's like, and I think that's the sweet spot where now a lot of psychiatrists, I hope, are moving towards this holistic approach to psychiatry. And then I want to dive in real quick before we wrap up here to talk about your um, mindfulness program. Yes, as a holistic psychiatrist, um, I developed a mindfulness-based program called the Mind Align Method. My institute is the Mind Align Institute. My practice is holisticpsychiatry.com. And within this, we talk about the healing trajectory, stabilizing physiology if and when needed, knowing what the root cause is, and then giving away using mindfulness-based self-observation to really work with a reactive pathway. So this is what I do. I do these two parts. And I did want to come back in our last moments to what you said about, well, maybe I'll always be working with my trauma. And what I've observed is, yes, we will always work with our trauma because especially when it's in early childhood, it's a part of the reactive pathway. It's part of how the nervous system was formed. But as soon as we can use a self-observation, which is what the method is about that I developed, the mind align method, um, as soon as we can learn to self-observe the reactive pathway of the stimulus hitting the physiology, leading to fear and anxiety, 
observing the thoughts that come because of that, and then using the technique to ground into the body, take the deep breath, calm back down that 90 second window like you talk about. Mm. There is hope to recondition our fight or flight response away from clenching and bracing into when the stimulus hits it, taking the inhale, really breathing in, letting go, shifting back into homeostasis. And that's the hope that over time we can observe that moment of the stimulus response and it will have less and less impact over time. Over time, yeah. The 90 second thing that we were talking about there because we didn't catch that on audio and it was a beautiful thing that I heard from Pema Chodron a long time ago where she said every feeling that we experience it will only last for 90 seconds. Every like big emotional response, only 90 seconds. And so instead of diving in, it's when we dive in and we start to label it and we start to characterize it and dive into the narrative that it lasts for minutes, hours, or days, or months, or years. Um, But if we can instead observe it and just go, oh, that was interesting. And I gave the example of... um, when someone used to cut me off on the freeway, I would have this whole internal dialogue of what I would say to them and how I was right and how they were wrong. And then I would start to characterize the type of person who would do that and yada, yada, yada. And for the rest of my drive, I'd be in this state of fight or flight, which I would argue is probably a big contributor to a lot of car accidents and other stuff that's going on is that like inability to really stay present and focused and grounded um, in every area of your life. But now when that happens, I just go, oh, it's not about me. It's mm. not about me. It has nothing That's to right. do with me. It happened. It's passing. Here we go. And I'm certainly not perfect at this all the time. But um, that mindfulness is so obtainable. And once you begin to access that prefrontal cortex on a regular basis, it's like a muscle that you're working And in time, you'll see huge, huge shifts in your life, in your relationships, in your external world as a result of that internal work. That's right. That's right. And that's, you know, what you said about plant medicine. I think that the insights can be had in those moments. However, there is no replacement for doing your own work, for exercising your mindfulness muscle, your self-observation, working to calm down that reactive Mm -hmm. pathway when it gets triggered. And I admire you so much for doing the work. Mm -hmm. I can see you've really been on the path for a long time and you've really pulled apart the nuts and bolts of how to work with yourself to heal from trauma. And it is possible. Yeah, it is. Everybody who I've said who's had that experience or had a plant medicine experience has said it's about integrating the gifts that the plant medicine gave you into your day-to-day life. And if you're not integrating, then you're just going and having a trip. Mm, That's right. (laughs) But if you're, if you go, okay, here are some real truths and now I'm going to apply this in my life, it can be a huge gift. Um, But like I said, it's not for everyone. I don't think it's for me, at least not right now on my path, but I hold space for everybody who's using these new methods. I think it's interesting. I think all things should be explored. You know, um, we've grown so much from the times where people who were deemed mentally ill would be locked up and put through basically torture to now where we're going, oh no, these people just need compassion and love and connection 
And that is the path towards healing. So for everyone who listened today, I will make sure to put all of these books in the show notes that we spoke about, as well as a link to Dr. Sagan's website so you can learn more about her method. And I hope you guys had major takeaways from this week, just like I did. I'm holding space and love for you all as we navigate um, this world and this experience. And until next time, have a great week. Thank you so much. This week's affirmation is, I have the power to change my life. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday and you can follow along with us on Instagram at Recovering From Reality or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com. 